0: Welcome to Between the Sound, a place to share all things music, art, conversation, inspirations, aspirations, friendships and where we get into it. So let's get into it. A pioneering artist, drummer, singer and formidable frontman with a multifaceted musical journey of both touring and televised career highlights, he has featured within popular acts as The Black Diamonds, Roots and Jenny and FBI, collectively spanning well-deserved decades. Creating his own music label Umbrella Records and then joining forces with Congo Music, this visionary introduced audiences to the undeniable talent of much-loved and honorary MBE British soul music legend Omar, with collaborations alongside Stevie Wonder, Leon Ware, Erica Badu, Common and D'Angelo to name a few. With an exemplary and steadfast independent label mindset, he is a firm advocate of music business knowledge and always retaining one's own power, along with good Legal representation. Today, we welcome Root Jackson. We're here. Hi, Root Jackson.
1: I'm good, girl. Yeah.
0: We made contact.
1: At last, yeah.
0: <laughs> Worth the wait. So, thank you for mm. doing this. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me and tell me, hopefully, many stories. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning. Where were you born and where were you raised?
1: I was born in a beautiful little island be in the Grenadines called Carriacou. It's the largest of the Grenadine Islands, which is, for me, it's just a beautiful part of the world. I grew up there until I was 16, and then I came to the UK.
0: So what did life look like growing up? Magic, yeah. How was um, the music in Caracu? I'm presuming you had music all around you.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was. It was always there. Well, Steel Band was was just coming. When I was growing up, like in the fifties. Steel Band was the big thing coming from Trinidad. All that right down the southern part of the Caribbean: Grenada, Tobago. We had. A, we have our own kind of a local vibe, which is very african as well drums and singing cultural thing we have a thing they'd call the big drum which is direct link to to africa i think just one of the few islands in the caribbean that maintain that because um the people that stayed there you know it's they're still very afrocentric The warriors (laughs) is that one of the places in the caribbean where you'll still find a lot of people with the African names, like the Kwashi's or the Kwaminaw or the Kojo's. So, you know, they've, they've, they've got a rebellious streak in them and that reflects in the music. We were fortunate to have a, a music teacher in Karakoo in our school, Mont Pleasant School, which is on the Eastern side of the island. He was good. My family was, was very much in the States, really, when I was growing up. Um, my father, my uncles, three uncles in America, And they dotted around the Caribbean, some in Trinidad, some in Aruba.
0: So there was a strong identity in Karakou from the African roots and it translated?
1: Very, very much so, yeah.
0: So when did you start playing music?
1: I've been involved with music, the local music. One of my cousins was the music teacher in the school. So he was one of the few people on the island that actually could read music. His family was also in the States. We, We used to sing a lot in school morning before before class. We had, we had a really strict regime. I wish they'd bring that back. Wednesdays and Fridays, we had special singing lessons. He took a uh, liking to me from very early. So he used to give me some special vocal lessons. And so I learned things like harmony. He was just special. But then he he had to move back to America because he lived there. Then we had the steel band. The steel band started coming to Caracou in the fifties. You know, we had a guy who came from Trinidad. He was a bit of a rebel in Trinidad. He he started the first steel band in Caracou. Pan music was already making a real impact in Trinidad. When he came to Caracou, he brought that vibe with him. Because he was from a, a place called Lavanter in Trinidad, which is where the pan started really. And he met with some of the guys that was going to school in Grenada at the time. And one of them brought him up to Caracol. And uh, I remember they used to go around stealing people's drums because uh, we have a lot of dry season there, and people used to have always have a drum, a big drum with to catch the water from from the roof. They used to go around in the night and steal people's drum to cut cut it to make steel pan, you know. So people, they they didn't know anything about what was going on, but you know the word got around that these boys are going around stealing people's um, drums to make steel band. And uh, I mean, at that time, steel band was the rebel music of of the Caribbean. So yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've been involved in music. It was never my intention to really make a career of it. It wasn't.
0: No, I mean.
1: It's not the done thing in the Caribbean, Because the thing down there at the time was, you know, you finish your school in there and then you go to America mostly because that time England wasn't really open up yet. A lot of people would go to Trinidad or they'd go to Aruba. And I had family in all them places. So what happened was my uncle who lived in Brooklyn, my grand-uncle, in fact, two of my uncles got killed in Brooklyn around the 30s and 40s. And they were involved in the Garvey era, my great granduncle So he got a lot of them up there. So my uncle used to tell, when he retired and he came home, and he built us a house to live in, a, quite a big house up in the hills. He used to tell a story on Moonlight Night, I used to love it, about growing up in Brooklyn. Because those guys used to travel young. Yarraku is a boat-building community. All the heads of family would want to travel. They would leave school young. Some of them would leave school at 13, 14 and the first thing they would do, they'd go sailing. Wow. So we had we had that, and it was a very independent island. I didn't want to go to America. He used to tell me some horror stories about Brooklyn. As I said, I lost two uncles through violence in Brooklyn. But my elder sister was over here. She was doing nursing. So I said to them, well, if you want me to travel, I would, I would rather go and stay with my sister in the UK. But I, I really didn't want to leave the island. Yeah, I ended up in Huddersfield. I came to my sister's. Well, that was a whole different experience. The place was so gray. Uh, They had the mills up there. We used to get really bad winters, fog everywhere, and I just couldn't get used to it. Yeah, they were, when I came here, there were some boys from, some older boys from Kiara they There's lots of, you know, natural talent musicians there. And they, they came over here, and I think that saved a lot of them. And they formed, they formed two bands playing rock and roll. One was a band called Twilights. One of my, my relatives was singing with them. In fact, he used to play guitar. Because I used to do a lot of concerts and stuff in in school. An older relative, he used to play guitar for me when when I'm singing. He came up before me. So he had a band, and there was another band called the Echoes. They used to rehearse in uh, the Labour Party Hall in Huddersfield. I remember that. And one evening I was there, and the drummer said to me, have a go on the drums, man. And uh, I just kept the groom on 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 doing rock and roll. And he said, Yeah. So the word got around. <laughs> Everybody, this boy could play drums. He's be- very musical. And plus I was singing as well. Some younger boys was putting a band together. I got a call from the guitarist one day. He said, Oh, we're putting a band together. These are all Caracol boys. And we hear you're very musical. The drummer we have is rubbish. Okay. We're we looking for um a drummer. You want to come on an audition and see if you can work? Ah. So I went down there, and we we, we, we did a, a couple of shows, mainly rock and roll and uh, British pop and all kind of stuff that was going around at the time. And it worked, and I got the gig. And this is this is what '65. Um, there used to be a German promoter used to come to Huddersfield, well Yorkshire, really. This is around when the Beatles was really hot, and you know the Beatles thing broke in Germany first before it broke anywhere else. So right. On the back of that, people was coming over to England to find bands to, to work in, in Germany. And we we went, we went to a, for an audition in Bradford University with loads of bands, and we won the audition. And I, I didn't have a drum kit, I was in school, I knew my parents wouldn't want me to be, you know, leave college. So I said to my sister, Oh, let me say she was lovely though. I mean she was she was like my my second mom because we were always close. I didn't tell her I was going on the audition, but when I when I told her that we won the audition and I don't have a drum kit and I'd like to do it. Can she lend me the money to deposit on the drum kit? I think the kit was about 135, 40 pounds. In those days, that was a lot of money. Yeah. and uh, so <laughs> she lent me the money to deposit on the kit and myself and the, the rest of the band we didn't have a van or nothing we went up to this place in Yorkshire, Barnsley. somebody told us about a shop, a music shop the shop had all the, the latest Yeah, so I, I i saw them, my eyes went straight to this silver glitter premier drum kit but I, I, I thought, you know, if, I, if I'm going to do this I want to do it properly Yeah. we got the kit, we got the It out in that shop actually, so we were ready to go to Germany.
0: Yeah,
1: that's when I realized okay, you can play music and make money, you know. So (laughs) we were away for about six weeks for the first time, we became very popular. That was a band called the Black Diamonds, and I was the drummer. It It was rock and roll, original rock and roll. Yeah, Little Richard, uh, Fats Domino. Um Chuck Berry was my, my, my main man around that time. So.
0: Right. Who were your musical influences mainly?
1: I used to listen to all kinds of music. Even even in the Caribbean, you know, I would listen to radio. Not many people had radios, but we had a radio because um, my uncle came down with, with, with the American vibe. So we had a radio. The radio was always on. I used to like people like the Everly Brothers, Pat Boone. And of course, the Calypso yeah, Sparrow, Melody. Uh, we, we, we never used to hear a lot of American music, in the, only the, the really poppy one. And then you had um, country and Western Caribbean people loved that, like uh, Jim Reeves and all those kind of people. The, the band used to have a singer before I joined them. I was the drummer but I used to sing as well. We used to have to do four, sometimes five sets a day. On Sundays, it's five. During the week, we were playing three, four times a night. So by the time we finished that first tour, the band was really tight. The singer we had, his voice was pretty weak. I used to play drums and sing. That became very popular. So when we went back to England, the rest of the guys said, well, we want to get rid of the singer. I had a cousin. She's from Trinidad. She was doing nursing in Huddersfield and we were close in age. I heard that she was singing with another band and I wanted to work with a female vocalist. We, um, we decided to bring her into the band audition and she was, she was really very good and natural. The guy came back from Germany and said, I want you guys to come back to Germany. At that time, there were loads of American basses. We started playing more American basses. The GIs had a club. That was their, their hangout. They all used to come in there, they loved the band. That's when one of them, G.I., started introducing. I remember he brought me an album, The Impressions. At that time, because I was more into the rock, it was a bit too sweet. Yeah. And I said that to him, listen to it good. So I took the album, brought it home. And then he brought me Wilson Pickett and James Brown, early years of soul music. And I started picking up on that, doing some of that singing and playing on drums. That went down really well, and we came back here, and uh, this guy from Leeds, he was an agent, and he heard about us. He said he wanted to manage the band. But what, what really did it for us? In Huddersfield, there used to be a guy with a studio, small studio, one of the few studios in the north. The bass player used to play so loud, he used to blow all the amps, box amps. It wasn't built for bass, really. and the fact that he's playing so loud, he just blows the speakers. This guy called Matt, Matt asked. Do you, do you remember the, the Orange Amps? Do you remember them? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that came from this guy in Huddersfield. We came back from Germany, and this guy called Matt. He said, I'll make you a bloody amp that won't blow, <laughs> And I'll build you a PA system as well. And And, and we thought, is he real? But he did. Because he had a studio there, but we, we were not aware he had this, this skill, you know? The studio was there, and we used to go there and do demos. He, he gave us a lot of free studio time. He put two 18-inch speakers in the cabinet, and then an I- amp at the top. We'd never seen that before. This is long before the, all the other companies like Marshall and all them. When we heard the, the, the sound of that, wow. Around that time, when we just got the new setup, we did a gig in Sheffield University supporting uh, Fleetwood Mac. Wow! This manager agent we had, he worked miracles because he was the, one of the biggest agents in the north. So we used yeah. to get all the top gigs touring. So we, that's when we turned really pro, and that's when universities used to have a budget, and that built up our, our reputation. This gig we was doing, we went on first. We were the support band, and when we finished, uh, Mick Fleetwood, he said, where you guys get this system from? <laughs> <laughs> because we had a really good sound. We told him, well, there's a guy in, in, in Huddersfield who's making these amps. So this is a MAC amp, which later turned into orange. Uh-huh. He said, what? He said, the sound was amazing. I said to him, I'll give you the guy's number. And he phoned Matt. There was a guy in Charing Cross Road called uh, Cliff Cooper, and he had a a music shop, So he he went to see Cliff Cooper and said, you've got to check out this guy. Cliff phoned Matt. Matt came to London, had a meeting with Cliff. The business deal was, Matt would keep the Matt amp, but he would uh, pass on the same technology to Cliff Cooper. And that was the beginning of Orange Amplifiers. Orange is bigger than anything else in America.
0: They have a retro look.
1: Yeah, that's right. That was my early experience.
0: How was it for you coming from Karakou to the shock of the north of England and then being in Germany, another super foreign environment, but then returning? What did that feel like for you as a young man gaining popularity?
1: Well... It was all exciting for me. Once we realized that you could earn, you can actually tour. And in those days, I talk to musicians all the time, and they will tell you they still get a really good treatment of promoters in Germany, even Mm -hmm. up to this day. And we noticed that from them, from those days, they look after you. We had a house to stay in, so it was comfortable. And we did that for a few tours. The manager had this vision of a duo. Britain didn't have anything like that. So we went out, and Jenny Jackson. Her name is Monica. My name is Faithman, but we changed the name. Okay. Uh, (laughs) And um, that really worked because he was one of the biggest agents in the North, based in Leeds. Most of the work was all up North. He controlled a lot of that at one time we were the highest paid non-recording band in the country wow we did some demos offers from uh three three or four companies for root and jenny and um that was it we had emi we had pi we had island in the in the the early years and then we had a a a label called beacon records beacon was just coming through as an independent label and i've always wanted to work with independent, So um, I said, let's go with Beacon. Beacon, at that time, they had a hit with a a band called The Showstoppers, a track called "In Nothing But A House Party. That was a big tune in the clubs, American band. The guy from that band was Solomon Burke. You heard of Solomon Burke? Yeah. Solomon Burke's nephew, it was his family. They came over here, did a tour, and we went to see them. The company said, you know, they want to sign us. And we went to Beacon. That was based in in Wilson at the time. And from there we leapfrogged into going into the big studio, Thai studio and in Marble Arch and recording.
0: Did you have confidence to make these decisions, you and Jenny, presumably, in where to go, who to go with, what decisions to make for your careers?
1: Enough confidence. But I also trusted our manager. I trusted Danny Pollock because he he taught me a lot and he worked hard. There was two guys, both Jewish guys, from Leeds. They used to be called S&D Enterprise. Stuart was the one that used to go out in the street. Danny was more the office boy who done all the hustling. He, he was good on the phone, but Stuart was the street boy. And he's the one that used to go out there and plaster posters all over the place. He's still in Leeds. And he's still in the business. He's more. He deals more with, mostly with television now and press and stuff. But the last tour I did, penny of three, and year four, I called him up. We did a whole tour. tour my last album, Funkin' with the Blues album. So Stuart is still on, on the fringes. He doesn't do as much now. So that relationship built a solid kind of foundation for Root and Jenny.
0: So Root and Jenny presumably put out albums.
1: We put out um, singles. We had about six singles, double double singles. There is an album out there. Just as we were starting to record the album, the record company went down, Beacon Records. The last few recordings we had, we had a couple of hits in Italy. So it was in, in the summertime, we never stayed in this country. We started touring Europe a lot more, Holland, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, across to France, Spain. We had a good live show.
0: You and
1: Jenny did Top of the Pops? Yeah. In fact, we were quite regular on TV. So when we had records out, we'd do a TV show. The Northern Soul thing, Ruth & Jenny was one of the bands that was popular on that scene. In Sheffield, there was the Mojo Club, which is, you've heard of Stringfellows, the guy who owned his family. They used to run a place called the Mojo Club in Sheffield. It was like a church hall. But they had the best bands coming over. Any, any American acts that was coming over. Whether it's The Temptations, Jimmy James and the Vagabonds, Patti LaBelle. Pete knew his stuff. He knew, he knew how to run a club. And that was the scene because live music was it. At that time, the music was changing over here. Music was getting a lot more, what they call it, progressive, experimental. We came back here and Jenny wanted to stay in Italy. Because we had this success in Italy, and Italy was yeah. so the place, a lot of British bands used to end up there. The first time I met the guy from the Average White Band, drummer Robbie Robbie McIntosh, the original drummer. So we we, we built up a, a, a different kind of vibe just being in Italy. That vibe sort of crossed the pond and came back to England, and that's where um, at that time I had a, a relationship. Just my, my my daughter Vanessa was just born. I have already had a relationship breakdown, I had to make a decision. I said, no, I want to, I want to stay here and at least watch one of, my, one of my children grow up. We moved to London in 1970. I was living in Chiswick at the time. And then I moved across to West Ham Street. And that's when our FBI happened. Studios were expensive. When you go in the studio, you have to know what you're going to do. A producer or whoever it is is watching the crowd constantly.
0: So you guys, you guys as a band had to be really rehearsed to save time.
1: Well, for the first three singles we did, we used session musicians because the record company was saying the a bigger sound, American kind of sound. And then later on, I insisted on having my own band in the studio. That was a good experience because even now when I listen to that stuff, there's a different energy to it. You can't beat when you have musicians that you know. FBI was a different thing, because what happened was I needed to find out more about the business side of things. I needed to learn more about the music business rather than just the performer. In that space of time, when we was in Italy, I met some of the musicians from from, the, from London. Basically, player was a cousin of mine, Chester. Lloyd was in Italy. Uh, Byron was in Italy, which is Omar's father. Uh-huh. There was a drummer from Manchester, Richie. He was good, very funky. I was very fussy. When you're playing and singing yourself, you know exactly what to give. And my favorite drummer at the time was a guy called Al Jackson. He's still my favorite drummer. He he was the master of the backbeat. He played with all the big boys, the Otis Redding, Booker T and the MGs. That was my drummer. And we um, put this band together called Batik. We got a gig to back Americans coming over. The first one we did was Eddie Floyd, Knock on Wood. You know, that that taught me a lot. You have one rehearsal. And that's where the discipline comes in. And we toured with 2 weeks tour on the road, straight up. The next one was Benny King and the other one was Jimmy Hell, Percy Sledge. So we 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 started building a vibe with that band. We realized that, well, this 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 band could go somewhere, it could do something. Again, I wanted to work with a female vocalist, started writing. So Colette, lovely voice, Irish. She could match my vocal, Janice Jopley kind of vibe. And the band was formed around that. And FBI was born.
0: What was Colette's surname?
1: Wilkinson. Bonnie Wilkinson. At that time she used to go out as Bunny.
0: How did you get root?
1: My name is Faithman. That's my name, my parents gave. Faithman Anthony. And for me, that was too much. So I changed it to Root in in the 60s, late 60s. So yeah, FBI. we rehearsed that band for about six months before we did our first gig. We We just wanted to do original material. We had to start writing. Because we used to do places like Upstairs at Ronnie Scott's. And we did, that was the first gig we booked. The word was already getting around about this band. The press got involved. And that was it. So we did a TV show called Magpie and the buzz just built up. The producer from the show came down. They were looking, they used to have the odd band on the show. We were doing funk, but we were doing a different kind of funk with energy.
0: Who would you say your influences were for FBI?
1: Influence was the Herbie Hancock kind of vibe, mixed with you know, the vibe from war. Cool and the gang to a certain degree. Early cool on the So it was that kind of vibe and a bit of earth, wind and fire as well thrown in. But we had our own twist on it. We didn't want to to sound American. We made an arrangement to sign up with his production company. Because the, the good thing about doing that deal was we had all the studio time in the world we needed. The next thing was the producer. I said, I want a British sound. A young guy called Chris Kimsey. Chris did stuff with a young artist at the time called Peter Frampton. So he was a bit soulful, this engineer. He was 21, he was very open, and he wasn't afraid to tell us what he thought. He came in as producer. That worked out really well. Chris later went on to work with, well, he, he started working with the Stones, the Rolling Stones. I think he'd done about four or five of the Rolling Stones album, when we worked with Jimmy Cliff, Peter Tosh. That was FBI, Funky Bands Incorporated.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. How long did it last?
1: About five years. But, I mean, the band was really ready to go. There was loads of premises, but management messed that one. Up. And that's when the idea of setting up an organization called the Black Music Association, so that musicians could learn more about the business. I set up a label, Umbrella Records. Byron, at that time, was doing a lot of reggae stuff, but we always kept in touch. We got together, had a couple of meetings. A report was done. I was why Black music in the UK wasn't getting the success? I said, we need to sort out the business side. We have to know the business. For me, just playing music is not enough. And between us, we put something together and, and applied for some funding from the GLC. And we got funded. And by that time, Omar had come on the scene.
0: He, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the greats in this country. Knowing Omar's British soul artistic career, how do you see his career as an example of the British music industry?
1: Omar was in, in Cheatham's in Manchester the Music School. He would do demos. He had one track that we recorded that was beginning to get some feedback. As soon as you hear the bass line, when the track finished, I knew anyway, you know, this was something special. I saw the talent, his talent. He just had it. You know, he could play bass, he could play drums, he could sing, keyboard. We'd merge my label, umbrella, with Congo and call it Congo Dance. You know, learning about A&R, learning about marketing. So we had everything set up. When Omar, when he finished his music school and he was spending more time doing demos, Darren, they remortgaged the house. Wow. Ten grand.
0: That's belief.
1: <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't know this. We're not going to no record company. Let's do it. We're doing it independently. We booked the studio. We went up there for 10 days. We, we waited until we knew we had a hit record. with nothing like that.
0: Yeah.
1: Just on the back of that track. Because he, he laid down most of the tracks himself, you know, in the studio. For the first time, I saw him at work, and he didn't stop. He would bring in my daughter, Vanessa, because Vanessa was, was with Black Heroes at the time. They would come up and help with the backing vocals, and that's what we did. When we finished that first session, we all had a cassette to go home with, and the following day... Listen to the music again. So listen, I don't know about you, but I think we're ready to go as it is. We knew we had a hit record. It was about the rawness, about the energy. We made a decision. We put out the album. No single. Of course, there's nothing like this. Sold the album.
0: The test of time that has stood.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's still his biggest his biggest honor. He's done eight albums now. He's done his ninth album, but that is still the track that is earning him most, most money.
0: Based on Omar's success story, what's your definition of success?
1: As far as I'm concerned, that is success. It's about keeping control. You know, it's not easy. That is something that I've always had. When When I found out who's making the money, with that mindset, we've been in the industry for 20 years. We're surviving, but we're not really making any money. Who's making the fucking money in this? Because I'd already set up a label and I said, well, let's let's move in, merge in together and focus on independence and whatever deal we do, maintain control. Up to this day we still stand by that.
0: Does that label still run?
1: Well, yeah, it still survives because we own we own everything, especially the publishing side.
0: So what would you say as advice for up-and-coming musicians now? Right
1: now, just looking at um, the way the industry is. You've got to put the work in. Once you start putting that energy in, things start falling into place. We, we had a really good lawyer. And that was the best thing we've ever done.
0: Would you say, Ruth, that it's fair to say the best advice that you would give is retain control and have good lawyers? Yeah. What's the best advice you've been given?
1: Well, I get to the stage where I take my own advice. I don't need anybody. <laughs> What's the best advice? my advice. <laughs> yeah there's very few people can tell me anything about the music business in this country. I know I know it you know I've been in it long enough decades now and I've seen the ups and downs because it's not easy. I mean we, we run a label we've got artists a lot of the artists on, on Congo family four of my children in music. We're cool. But what we have to do is to maintain control and make sure you just keep your head on. Don't let them tell you, no record company tell you how your music should sound. Create your own vibe.
0: And that's the main thing as an artist, your sound, isn't it?
1: Yeah, your vibe. Yeah, Doesn't sound like anybody else.
0: Having shared the stage with you several times, I can attest to the power of your frontmanship. What would you say the secret is to commanding a stage?
1: Um, I don't know. I remember when when, when, when we used to do the, that place in Wilsden, Prince of Wales, and uh, I can't remember what you said to me, but, you know, like you were nervous kind of thing. I said, listen, it's not about that. It is about going on there and just being you. I've seen you develop. It's about confidence, isn't it?
0: Yeah. That place really overwhelmed me because, you know, as you remember probably, I I used to just come down and hang out. And next I was fronting this big ass band that <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, yeah. you know. Yeah, 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 I was swimming. I was swimming.
1: <laughs> and you've got it. I've watched you develop and I can see you know you've you've blossomed in, in into a, a very confident front woman now.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Well, I've taken my lead from you because you certainly do command the stage. And and it's something, as you say, you just do by being you. And it's very... Powerful.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's so important to just be you. And and it's something that I've seen it with so many artists. I've seen it with Omar. And that's all you need. It's important to have like-minded musicians that you feel comfortable with. It's so important. And, and a lot of people don't really appreciate that. And have fun. You've got to enjoy what you're doing.
0: As you say, it's a vibe.
1: Yeah.
0: What's next for Ruth Jackson?
1: I'm off to the Caribbean. My granddaughter, well, you know I'm a great-granddad now.
0: What? Wow. <laughs> Congratulations.
1: Yeah, one of my granddaughters is getting married. She's been on my case. We're very close. And she always wanted me to be there for a wedding. They wanted to get married in the Caribbean. The wedding is now switched to Barbados. Going to the wedding and then I'm off to Caracol from there, from Barbados to Grenada. And I really need to recharge my batteries. I've got to finish doing some writing. I'm doing a documentary as well. And some of the filming I want to do in Caracol. So I'm, I'm I'm kind of keeping busy.
0: I love it. And I can't imagine you not being busy because you've got so many ideas and projects. And as you say, advice, you know, so... It's there to be
1: shared. I still feel that as musicians, we need to be doing more. I, I still feel that we can be calling the shots a lot more. I haven't lost my my drive for organi- for musicians being organized. Yeah, yeah. If you understand what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, I respect that.
1: It's, that's why I I, I always stress the musician at least know the basics.
0: Yeah, so, I got one more question for you, Ruth. This podcast is called Between the Sound. What does that phrase conjure up for you now that you hear that?
1: Um, Trying to find out the connection between the music and the business.
0: Yes. (laughs) Perfect. Ruth, I'm I'm honoured to get time with you today. And as you say... Be you. I'm so grateful that you're just being you because you're inspiring a lot of people that you don't even know. But you're definitely inspiring me. And I thank you for your time today.
1: Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Lovely. I mean, you know, we have we have to keep what we do and keep it going. But, you know, in, in Karakou, I started a festival down there called the Maroon Music Festival in 2000. Yeah. And one of my main aim was to bring down some musicians from here so we can go home and play music. In the Caribbean. Yeah. it has got to be somebody with some progressive minds who we can work together to build something. Definitely. We have plans to do things down in Caracou.
0: I'm going to give good vibes for it. You're going to go to the sunshine. Please bring some of it back.
1: I'll send some. I'll blow some to you.
0: Have a safe trip, you know, and uh, make good things happen.
1: Well, yeah, we just have to keep a positive vibe, man, whatever happens. So this next album, I'm looking forward to that. We just have to keep up the vibe. Keep the music live.
0: Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Ruth. Sending you love. Speak
1: soon. Bye-bye. Nice.